We've come to Isaiah 57 this morning, like I said earlier, so I encourage you to take your Bible out, turn there, Isaiah 57. We're going to have uh, one more week in the book of Isaiah, and then we'll take a break on uh, Resurrection Sunday and uh, have a standalone message there, and then jump right back into the last few weeks of our incredible walk through this together. You see the title there behind me, Who May Dwell with the Infinitely High and Holy God? It's kind of one of those questions you kind of think about every once in a while when you understand, uh, when you look at your own life and you go, man, I, I can't even name all the times I blow it. And God's holy and God is perfect and I'm going to bring us right into the middle of this chapter, absolutely immediately now. Verse 15, if you have your Bibles open, zip right there to verse 15. I want to go right to the the kernel of the nut for this section of Isaiah. I want you to look at me at the words of this text in verse 15. For thus says the one high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. So this is really an amazing verse, if you sit on it and think about it. The infinitely high, infinitely holy God, as he describes himself for us, tells us exactly what he's like. And not only that, he tells us of the dwelling place. He describes where he lives. And beyond that, he is incredibly gracious. He describes people he's willing to live with in that high and holy place. Who are those people? They're they're contrite. They're brokenhearted. Why? Well, because of sins. Now, this verse is going to occupy a good deal of our attention for the morning. We're going to kind of rotate around it. If you want to picture what we're going to do today, we're going to rotate around this verse. I want you to have a few moments today in the time that we have together to to swim let's say, in the deep seas of this truth, to dive in into the the deep beauty of what God is saying here and to rest in it. The soaring truth that should occupy our mind and will occupy our mind for all of eternity. We will actually be spending eternity, I think, thinking about these things. We're going to see in eternity how pure and how holy and how exalted and how lifted up God is. I mean, what do we do around the throne? What do the elders do? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I mean, that's what we're going to be doing, right? That, that is where we're at. And that understanding of the holiness of God and our own then, what's the second half of that? The sinfulness 
our own sinfulness and how those work together to make us eternally peaceful and filled with praise and glory to God. That goes on for all eternity because in eternity we realize, like now as those who are believers right now, we realize what he's done for us. And that makes us praise him. We're going to be amazed. And as we unfold this chapter, we're going to see how sweet, how powerful God is. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 right now. Let's look at this idea that righteous people are actually rescued by death. So Isaiah starts here, the righteous man perishes, and no man puts it on his heart, and the men of loving kindness are gathered away, while no one understands, for the righteous man is gathered away from evil, he enters into peace, they rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. It's an interesting way to start this. Righteous people are perishing in front of our eyes. Right? You can think of who that is for you. People that you know who are believers that have gone to be with the Lord. Now, in Isaiah's day, they were actually partially disappearing for sinister reasons. And even today, there are sinister reasons for the righteous to be perishing because they're being martyred. But even, even in that, even when the righteous aren't valued, when the righteous aren't recognized, when the righteous aren't honored, when God gathers them up, what, what happens? They enter into peace and rest because God takes them away himself. Not to be overlooked. Not to, any, to be anything except to walk with the Lord. So you got to understand that persecution, that's okay, bring it on. Disaster, it's all right. I'm saved. I've always been the person, and we'll say this again, every once in a while, you, you get online and you, you, know, you can buy all of these products to survive oh, you know, an absolutely awful nuclear disaster. And you guys know my understanding of that. I'm going to be the guy that's running outside and says, here am I, Lord, take me. Why would I want to survive that? <laughs> Dying is not a disaster for those that are in the Lord. We see that in verses 1 and 2 here. The, it, write this down. The only real devastation is to lose your integrity before God. It is better 
to die in obedience than live in disobedience. I'd rather die for him than live against him. Philippians 1.21, if, if our living is Christ, then our dying is gain. Death can be a gift. What do we see here? It actually can be that aspect of delivering us from evil. What do we say about the rapture? I mean, that's the whole idea, right? It was like Jesus saying, uh, time for the church to go because this is going to be awful. And the church doesn't have to be a part of it. As we go on then, Isaiah is like, oh, and by the way, here's what happens to those who follow idols. And starting in verse 3, we'll read through verse 13 right now. So follow along with me. But draw near, you sons of a soothsayer, seed of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Nah. Are you not children of transgression, seed of lying, who inflame yourselves among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines? Now, what is that today, huh? It's abortion. Under the cliffs of the cliffs, among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them who have been poured out as a drink offering, you have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a mountain lofty and lifted up, you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself, and you have gone up and made your bed wide, and you have cut a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. You were tired out uh, by the length of your road, yet you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint. Of whom were you anxious and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor even put me upon your heart? Was I not silent even for a long time, so you did not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Right? But the wind will lift all of them up, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. Wow. We could spend a lot of time 
digging into that. But let me just say, here Isaiah senses in the spirit of the times a contempt for God. God's people wanting something new and sparkly and exciting. And so what were they doing? They were not just flirting with idols. They were presenting themselves to those idols in a prostitution type of way. If you look at verse 7, upon a mountain lofty and lifted up, you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. They were doing this anything goes romp through life. Paganism. And that is what is around us today. You know, however exhausting it was, however degrading it was, you see all of that in there. However stupid it was, they're like, woohoo, we're all in. And to God, as it says there in verse 7, it was like getting into bed with a prostitute. See, Isaiah understands that God's covenant with us is really best pictured as a marriage. God loves us with an incredible love, like a man's passion for his wife. And we see in Isaiah, and then we see in Hosea, and we see in Jeremiah, and we see in Ezekiel, all of them telling us that uh, Treating God as if he isn't enough to satisfy us is spiritual prostitution. And it's why we must bring our emptiness to Christ and satisfy ourselves only in him. It's why the most important thing about us is our love for Christ. Our openness to Him and Him alone. It's why our role in the relationship is not a control role, but it's a surrender role. I surrender to Him. I think many people in this room, if, if, you're, if you're honest, you're going to acknowledge that it is a constant temptation to spread our love around and sacrifice to other gods. Because something in our hearts, in many different ways, in many different times, something in there doesn't allow us to believe that he alone is enough to thrill us forever. And that's what gets us in trouble. We are the ones that treat him poorly. It's not the other way around. We are the ones, though, that he still invites in. He is the one that still invites us in, even in the prostitution of our lives and going to so many other gods, you know, the gods of, of name it, you know, na name whatever that is. You know what the temptation is for you 
that's the highest. So fill in the blank there. He is still inviting you to find out what his goodness is really like. And that's why it ends in that section in verse 13. But he who takes refuge in me, he who takes refuge in me, he who understands that I have tried everything and it does not work. It does not work. And I think that's why you have to go back to the beginning of verse 13 there and, and really to our world and maybe to you today if you've been drifting. When God says, hey, when you cry out, let your collections of idols deliver you. See if that works. But no, it doesn't. But God dwells, yes, he's the most high and he dwells above and he is holy. But who does he dwell with? And we see that in verse 15 here, but let's, let's build up to it. Because God dwells with humble and healed sinners. But he who takes refuge in me, the second part of verse 13 there, will inherit the land, will possess my holy mountain, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the one high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his greedy gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the, heart, in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and pay him and his mourners in full with comfort, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. So I'm going to tell you right now, you may be going, okay, some of that I get, some of that I don't. This is Old Testament code language to say the gospel is offering us everything. If you have been trying to hack out your own existence rather than receive life as a gift from God, you will be in the first camp. The ones that are kind of dust in the wind. But for those that are wanting to receive life, or if you have, it is a reminder here, receiving this gift from God is the time to start inheriting what you've always wanted. As he says there, he is the one, the one We've offended, but he is the one 
who is doing what? He's like, I, I am preparing the way. Who is the way? Is Christ. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. What is our obstruction? Sin. Who is the person that removes it? It's Christ. See, God isn't building barriers to keep you away. He has provided the way. He has provided the truth. He has provided the life. He actually is insisting that there are no obstacles at all to keep you away in Christ. If you accept Christ, the way to God is open. So God is providing the way. But to so many people, unbelief is the road roadblock. So many treat God as a dead end rather than the goal. We're the ones building the obstacles because all have sin. So we've, we've built the obstacle. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you've been wondering how to find God, Isaiah 57, 15 is the verse that you're actually looking for because God's in two places. He's high and holy place where we can't go and he dwells among the lowly and the contrite where we are. So the way to find God is obvious. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and what will he do? He will lift you up. It's amazing how the Bible all works together. See, God's not like us. Oh, yeah, we're made in the image of God, but I think it's fairly obvious to all of us that we are the ones that create the roadblocks. See, for us, there's no neighborhood too classy for us to move up to. Can, have you really thought about that? In our own little world that we live in, you know, the idea of upward mobility is, is, is there. And it's like, hey, uh, I'm going to move to the next best neighborhood. Have you ever noticed that there's always another best neighborhood above that? God doesn't value that. He's like, I'm already there. He actually values downward mobility. Not because he feels uncomfortable dwelling in the high and most holy place, because that's who he is, but because down low is where he finds the people that are open to him. Where did Jesus hang out? Man, the Pharisees just couldn't stand the fact that he hung out with sinners. Jesus simply said in my paraphrase, well, the sick people need 
the physician. And if you don't think you're sick, I'm not going to be able to help you. And that's what's so interesting when we spoke a few weeks ago about the call that God has made to all of us, and it's really a call to those that try to build their own way to God, and, you know, they, they keep buying stuff and try to achieve stuff and get another degree on the wall or another business started or, or something like that, but at the end of the day, they feel just as empty as they ever did before. And, he, and he's like, uh, yeah, why don't you come to a place where you, your money's worthless? And then for those that already have figured out they have nothing, he's like, come on, I, I, will, I will provide everything you need. Lowliness for those who have everything and realize they have nothing and those that have nothing and realize they can have everything in Christ, that lowliness on both sides, when attacked with the knowledge of Christ, is liberating. It's so interesting. If, if you remember in the New Testament, Luke 14, Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, you guys been to a wedding lately? There's always that head table. Even, even now, you know, and, and, and it's like, you know, who gets to sit up there? You know, usually it's the, it's the family, you know, the moms and dads and, and you know, the, the bride, some of the bridesmaids or maybe all of them and the, the groomsmen. But it's kind of that, it's the honor to, to sit at that table and then Jesus tells this story where the guests were crowding up to the head table, but the host told them those, were, those, those seats were reserved for others. And, and the people that were going up to the head table were like, well, I, I, you know, hey, I'm, I'm like the, the best guy here. I, of course, I, I'm supposed to sit there. And, and Jesus is like, no, you're not. It's, it's not, that's, that's not how it works. And those people were embarrassed. Have you, have you ever done that before where you've gone somewhere and you tried to sit down somewhere, but that was actually reserved for someone else? Anyone, anyone, anyone ever get caught with that? And you feel like, oh, I feel so dumb. That type of thing. Well, these people were embarrassed. The people who took the lowly places, though, were invited to move to the seats of honor. You see, every single one of us coming into even church today, and you can actually see this in the book of James as well, should be thinking, where is the low place? Because the truth is, is I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's where I belong. I, I, I take the low place because, and you fill in the blanks. 
And if God wants to honor me further, guess who that's up to? It's up to God. Because he's the high and holy one. And he does notice the lowly. And that is when revival in your life is possible. Those who are poor in spirit. That means those that get their need for Christ. There was an author that said this, I am resolved to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I strive to do all that is within my power to expose, challenge, and change my innermost beliefs, values, and attitudes. I have committed myself to this. That's the act of making sure that your heart is in the right place and that that low and and contrite place. I'm not saying you have, quote-unquote, a bad self-esteem. You don't, you're not running around saying, oh, I'm a terrible person, hoping that people say, oh, no, you're not. You're awesome. See, that's just, that's, that's sinful too because you're just trying to get attention that way. So this is a true, a, a, a true understanding of who you are. I strive to do all that is within my power to expose, challenge, and change my innermost beliefs, values, and attitudes compared to Christ. That's the authenticity that God blesses. It's having that that mentality of the best of the best in maybe sports. You know, those, those that are really, really, really good at sports will tell you they've got to practice more and more and more because they get, they still have, you know, if I, if I dribble this way in basketball, I still have a weakness this way. I, I've still got to work on this. And they could be the best basketball player on the planet. It's, it's one of those things where I was reading this week. Any of you have ever seen the Blue Angels fly? Navy precision flying team? It is pretty awesome. And what happens is at the end of every performance, what do they do? They immediately go into the film room. And the commander points out all of the mistakes that they made at each point. These are the best. And whenever the leader points out a mistake, the reply that they have come up with themselves over the generations of that organization in the Navy, their reply is pretty cool. I'm just glad to be here, sir. Just glad to be here. It's a humble spirit. When you come to church today, are you like, I, I'm just glad to be here. I, I am glad that this high and holy God 
lifts his hand down to the very low me. And when I say yes to him, he lifts me up. And when we understand that, that's when we say, I'm just glad to be here. I'm just glad to be in his presence because there's nothing I did. But I'm going to live in obedience and I am going to strive to live his way more and more and more each day because I'm just glad I'm here in his presence. See, a, a church full of humble openness to Christ is ready for God to do amazing things in that church. Because God dwells among the lowly. And even if we have been involved in spiritual adultery, God heals. God restores. Verse 18. I have seen his ways, but what? I will heal him. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and pay him and his mourners and and full with comfort. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says Yahweh. And what again? And I will heal him. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Paul, in Ephesians 2, 17, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. If we stay humble before him, he will dwell among us with a peace and a healing and a comfort we can't explain except as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. He is offering healing to the insiders and the outsiders. And all of that healing comes from one place and one place alone, Christ. And then Isaiah flips into the last two verses here. And it's an an interesting flip because he goes back to, hey, if you, if you notice what, what, he, what he does there in that last point, it was like, you know, here, this is what happens with those who are humbled and are, they're healed. But just a reminder, let's go back to verse 20 and say this is what happens, though, to those who are wicked. And I, I want you to just, we got plenty of time here. We're going to actually end a little early, so we're good. We're going to just listen to these two verses and I want you to listen to these two verses. I mean, if you've got to close your eyes to do this, this is totally fine. But I want you to listen to these two verses in light of how people in this world that do not know God live. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse in mud, 
There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's our world. Every once in a while, I mean, and quite honestly, social media has given a voice to this more and more than you can believe. It is wild to watch the world tossing and turning between whatever new agenda is out there to try to fulfill some sort of idea that, oh, now, now I get how to live life. Now I get all of this. And they toss to the new issue or whatever that is. And then they toss to another new issue. And they move on from that because every single one of those issues at the end of the day is frothed up. And when they try to drink the water out of it, what's there? Nothing. That's why the picture's there. We live by the ocean, so we understand that. You get those waves that are crashing against the rocks, crashing against the rocks, and this frothy stuff comes up, and you're like, so you can go out, and sometimes it's so much froth out there, you're like, I'm going to go in the water, because you think there's water under it, but there's not. It's just junk. And the truth is, is that's everyone without Christ. Peace is not within us. We are by nature restless, never satisfied, never content, never grateful, never relaxed. We're like the tossing sea. And when God said there is no peace for the wicked, he meant that abiding peace is only possible when we are in a right relationship with him. Within every human heart is the knowledge of eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that. Before we know God through Christ, there is a a restlessness, longingness that we cannot define. We have moments when there's these deep questions that will surface that go, you know, why am I here? Does my life have any meaning? Is there more out there that I am missing? My soul is not finding any real peace. The beautiful, the powerful, the rich have those questions just like us. Money, fame, power, they provide temporary bandages. But what happens when the peace begins to ebb? Well, whatever the latest craze is. The peace is beginning to ebb in my life. I don't feel peaceful. I will take this course of action. What's a popular one right now? Fentanyl. You see how these things work? I'll take that. I'll take, once again, you can just go down the list of all of the different possibilities of try to find peace. Those who rejected God do not know the peace that accompanies the forgiveness of sins. And so you attempt to prolong the beauty. You you attempt to gain power. You attempt to increase riches. And they become, once again, the idols that God talks about earlier. It says, let those save you. 
how many people who have tried to live forever have been successful at doing that here on earth? I mean, I think one of the more interesting ones to me, because I am a sports guy, is Ted Williams, who literally had his head cut off when he died and deep frozen so that it could come back to life again at some point when they figure out how to do it. Right? You guys know, some of you know that story. It's true. It's true. How's that working out for him? Right? You invent false gods, you find distractions, you pursue philanthropies in hopes of finding peace. But what we all need is a simple four word sentence We need a Savior. And who is that? Christ the Lord. You see, Christ doesn't just confront our weaknesses, our wickedness. He forgives. And when you are forgiven, the door opens to peace. He opens the way to come back. He visits the lowly. He revives life. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart isn't that exactly what Isaiah is saying here who Christ is who God is I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls my yoke is easy my burden is light Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 and you know what no one else can say that to us God sent Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to reconcile the world to himself. Those who trust in him find that Jesus indeed came to guide our feet into the path of peace, as it says in Luke 179. The peace of God, God guards the hearts and minds of his children. It's a peace that transcends all understanding, as Paul says in Philippians 4. Jesus' method of granting us peace is the opposite of the ways that the world chooses. Conventional wisdom says that clinging to our lives, prolonging our lives, and our selfish desires is the way to find peace. Jesus said that we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow him. Peace will escape the wicked as long as they insist on their own way. But when the wicked, wicked repent and surrender their lives to Christ, they find peace. So let's end here with this. God in this section of Isaiah once again gives us an invitation. Verse 15. For thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the crushed 
and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. God has promised in this text that he has seen your ways. And he's promised to heal. He knows how you live. He knows what you do. He knows everything. He said, I am going to heal you. I will guide you. I will restore you. I will make you new. I will not always be angry. And that's how that lines up then with Matthew 11, with Jesus' appeal of taking my yoke upon you and learn from me and I am humble and heart and gentle and you'll find rest in your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That is the appeal. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, that is the appeal that is given from God himself. Believe in me, have peace through the peacemaker Christ, the Prince of Peace. It's the only peace that lasts forever. And then for those of us who are believers, we need to first go back to verses 1 and 2, meditate deeply on those verses, get ready for when you may lose another loved one in Christ. Be ready for it. Or even when you're potentially facing your own death, just realize God is good. And it is good that God takes righteous people out of the sinful world. He is just. He is good. And those people who are right with him are with him. Amen? That provides peace in the midst of sorrow. Well, yeah, we're supposed to be sad and have sorrow, of course. We miss people, but rejoice in the midst of that and be ready. Like I said earlier, be ready. Don't, don't fear death. Fear not knowing God. Secondly, if, if there's some restlessness in you in life, if there's just stuff that's like burning at your soul, things that you keep following uh, other ways except God, uh, wherever that is in your family life or uh, at, at home, uh, at work, uh, every single day is a journey in that, I understand, but repent. Turn from it. God will not bless wickedness even in the life of a believer. Even in his own children. Oh, he'll discipline you. He will discipline that out of you. <laughs> and and scripture is very clear that, that God's discipline is, is not, uh, it's not fun many times. But you will find peace in repentance. 
Third, I think you need to meditate on the staggering words of verse 15. As you can tell, I probably did this week. Swim in the deep oceans of God's greatness. And that he makes a way for someone like me to be with him. And then fourth, understand the finality of the last two verses. Understand the turmoil of the world that we see around us today is not from the environment, is not from politics, is not from anything other than sin. The turmoil of the world is spiritual. It's because people are out of fellowship with God. They don't know what life is about, and so they're churning. And you know what we need to do? We need to be the ambassadors that God has called us to be and simply share Christ with them. We need to give them the clear, simple news of the gospel that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. They can have peace in Christ and it's in Christ alone that they can have peace. So whatever happens in this world, whatever happens to you at work, whatever happens to you at wherever you are at this afternoon, just understand this. True peace is found only in the kingdom of God where we will be lifted up to the high and holy place in worshiping him. And on earth, while we're still here, the church Jesus is the head of the church. Being together with fellow believers is awesome. It's awesome to be with people who have found peace in God. And that's why the church is here. To build up, to equip, to train in acts of godliness because of the peace that's been given through Christ. And Christ is the head of the church and the Holy Spirit is in us, guiding us through his word that has been given to us to be his messengers. Peace is found only in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.